So uh, today we're going to do a fireside with Sam Jacobs, who is the CEO of Revenue Collective. Uh, we've known each other for about four years now. And, you know, Sam has a ton of experience with early stage companies, uh, a lot of experience in the venture world and raising money and how to navigate that. Um, a ton of experience with entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship himself. Uh, and I, I think really has a compelling story around transitioning. Um, and Merrick, you know, your uh, background, what, nine years in the SEAL teams uh, after graduating from the Naval Academy, uh, recently graduated from Wharton with your MBA, and now it's about finding the next step. So I thought it'd be cool to kind of have a, uh, an active dialogue just around you know, Merrick, where you're at and next step and getting some feedback from Sam. But maybe before we get to that, Sam, I'd love to kind of turn it over to you and just kind of hear, you know, what's your background and leading up to Revenue Collective? And then the second question is like some of the big transitions that you've had, you know, throughout your life, because I know a lot of transitioning veterans are, are working through the same thing. Okay. Well, uh, first, uh, Jordan, Merrick, thanks for having me. Um, so my background, let's see, I'm, uh, I'm talking to you from Manhattan, from New York City. I've been in New York City twice, the first time for a year out of undergrad in 99. I uh, graduated from University of Virginia with a double major in finance and economics, came out here to do, this was the first dot-com boom, and I did investment banking, and um, really didn't like it. And I left and went back to Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, you know, kind of like, trying to relive my youth. Um, and uh, I call that exercises in futility and, and poverty. Um, I was, uh, I started my own record label uh, in, at that time and, and quit uh, banking to run it. It didn't go very well. So then I came back to New York in 2003 and that's when uh, my career kind of really started my official career, which was um, sort of my startup career. So I joined a company called Gerson Lehrman Group that was about 25 million in revenue. I, I ended up staying there for seven and a half years, kind of rose up through the ranks. I left and they had just done about 280 million, so close to 300 million. Uh, they just, very profitable company. I just got a very good email from them uh, you know, earlier this week. Um, then I went to work at a place called Axial for four and a half years. These are all early stage companies. So everything from 20, 2003 to, to today, <laughs> to today is, is very early stage venture capital backed. Uh, four and a half years at Axial, which is a little mar middle market deal sourcing platform. That company was, I call it post-revenue. So, you know, not nothing, but very close to nothing. And we got that to about 10 to 12 by the time I left. I then went to work at Livestream, where I ran sales and marketing uh, for them. Uh, that was two years. Then I was chief revenue officer of a company called The Muse, and then chief revenue officer of a company called Behavox. And the, so the, the through line is that uh, these are all venture capital-backed companies aspiring for high growth. And I spent a shorter and shorter amount of time at each company as I became more senior. <laughs> so um, that relationship uh, was problematic. And around seven years ago, informally, I started getting people together in New York that were my friends and peers to build community and to share ideas and to commiserate. And we ended up calling that uh, the New York Revenue Collective. And we gave it a name, I gave it a name in 2016. And it was just in New York. And the reason it was just in New York and it was free was because I, I was using it really as a way of finding jobs, helping people, other people find jobs. And I didn't have a perspective that it could be a company, to be honest. Uh, it was just a great way to help people, I thought. Um, 
But because each of my other jobs, my day jobs was getting shorter and shorter, I felt a lot of pressure and urgency to try and uh, find my own path to build a revenue stream and to find a way to make money that didn't depend on other people. And so uh, January 1, 2018, we started charging uh, dues for Revenue Collective, just as a, a test, an experiment. Would people pay? Uh, it turns out that people would pay. And then people started hearing about Revenue Collective from all over the, the world. And I'd always assumed that because, you know, we talk about in business school, you know, and in, in business, we talk about moats, you know, barriers, competitive advantage, sustainable competitive advantage. And, you know, a dinner club uh, has no moat. Anybody can have a dinner anytime they want and invite whoever they want. And so I assumed that every city had like a sales executive club or a sales executive networking dinner society. It turns out that they didn't. And it also turns out that uh, all of the communities that did exist were always in some way working for somebody else and not for the for not for us as the operator, as you know, every every sort of organization or platform seemed to be serving an investor, right? So Vista Equity Partners runs a CMO conference. First Round Capital, really famous early stage investor here in New York, has the First Round platform, and if you're a member of a First Round Company, you can log in. But those are all run by investors, and investors don't always have the same interests as operators. Um, and uh, so one thing led to another, people started reaching out saying, can I start a revenue collective chapter in Amsterdam in London? I said, absolutely. And fast forward to today. So I started working on revenue collective full-time when I left my last full-time role. And I said, you know, if I can get this thing to 2000 people by the end of 2020, I feel like we'll be in really, really good shape. And that was before COVID, of course, it was well before any of that stuff had happened. And, um, I didn't know what the future would hold. I took a leap and I started working on this full-time, as I mentioned, about two years ago. Today, we have about 3,500 members. Again, the original goal was 2,000. We have chapters all over the world. We have uh, New Zealand, Singapore, Stockholm, uh, Berlin. These are you know, just wild how many different places these communities have self-organized and plugged into you know, the central nervous system, which is Revenue Collective HQ. And we're gonna end the year about 4,000. We're gonna end next year about 8,000 uh, people. We're launching Operations Collective. Revenue Collective is for sales, marketing, and customer success executives. Operations Collective will be for back office folks, for finance, legal, and HR professionals. All the same ideas, all the same sort of methodology about how to build a community and structure it. And so this year alone, uh, from a revenue perspective, we'll have grown 5X during COVID. And, um, and now, now, uh, like the vision has become clearer and sort of I, I understand the project a little bit more. And the project in essence is that, you know, we're all used to a certain way of being treated um, for a lot of different reasons, but especially if you look at kind of social networking platforms or places like LinkedIn, which are really useful. But the whole construct of a place like LinkedIn is that it's free. And because it's free, as we always say, right, we're the product, right? They sell access. We upload all of our information and then LinkedIn makes money by selling access to our information to recruiters, to sales development reps and salespeople, to, uh, to advertisers, et cetera, right? And the whole construct of all of the ways that we've been taught as human beings to interact with each other on the internet is that because it's free, they can do anything they want with our information. And I'm trying to reinvent that. And what we're trying to do with Revenue Collective and all of the communities that we end up starting is flipping it and saying, listen, you are going to pay. You're going to pay to be a member of this thing. So it's not going to be 100 million people. 
right? It's probably, it's going to be less than that just by virtue of the fact that we're putting up a gate, which is your money. But because you're going to pay, uh, you're the customer, actually. This time you are the customer. And we are going to build things for you, only for you. Not for the employer, not for the investor, not for anybody else, but our members. We are going to design services so that all of these things that you would never, to the point of, you know, the conversation me and Merrick might have later, right? All of these, you would never email LinkedIn. You would never like email support at LinkedIn and say, I've got a, a job interview next week. I'd like to talk to somebody about like the best way to prepare for this particular company and see if you have any information about the company, right? You would never do that with LinkedIn because that's not... You have no expectation that LinkedIn gives a shit about you at all, right? Like the whole thing is like, of course not. There's nowhere to call. There's no 800 number for LinkedIn. I'm not allowed to talk to them. They do whatever they want. And, you know, maybe I'll be happy about it. And so we're trying to reinvent that and say, think of a different way of being where, yes, you're going to pay, but you're not going to pay a lot. And because you pay, we're going to build all kinds of wild things for you. We're going to build you a legal hotline so that if you get in trouble at work, you can email and we'll give you a great lawyer. We're going to build you access to a global community of people that have been there, done that. All of them who have promised to answer questions in a timely way uh, anytime that you ask that question. Uh, we're gonna give you one-on-one -on -one career coaching and compensation coaching. We're gonna give you access to data around how much money you should make. We're gonna teach you to ask for things in your compensation that you've never even thought of as a way of protecting you and making sure that you're positioned for success. So at any rate, you know, this is a, a, a you know, long-winded, but, but that's where we're at. We're, we're, I'm, I'm building this thing where the vision is to reinvent uh, kind of like professional networking platforms with a new way of doing it where um, that the human being is at the center. And, you know, and now the vision is as opposed to 2000 people, it's really about 100,000 people by the end of 2024 across a number of different professions, across a number of different industries, but a, common, a few common themes. Common theme number one is everybody's been interviewed, everybody's been vetted. Right, so every single person that you interact with through Revenue Collective or through Operations Collective, you'll know that they're not, you know, they're not trying to sell you, uh, like the uh, get you to send it, wire them a hundred thousand dollars so that they they're uh, they're a prince from you know wherever country and they could be freed, or that they're some strange you know place and whatever. They're not fraudsters. That they're real. They're real human beings that have been vetted. They, you'll also know that they've agreed to abide by our code of conduct. That they have. It's not just we don't just want your money. You have to agree that you're going to help other people and that you're not going to spam them or directly solicit them unless they ask to be. So 100,000 people, all of whom have been vetted, all of whom have been interviewed, all of whom have said, yes, I will help when it's non-competitive and I won't spam you. And we're all going to come together because we believe that life isn't zero sum, that like we can all do better by helping each other. Uh, there are a few instances when we can't, but most of the time the world will be better if we all agree to help each other. So that's the vision for the world that we're trying to create. That's awesome. Um how, what advice would you have to transitioning veterans who are kind of scratching their head in terms of like, God, like, I just don't feel like they're fitting into a particular thing naturally. And they're thinking about entrepreneurship, but what are the key blocks that you have seen from people taking that leap into entrepreneurship? And what are some of these big factors that they should be considering of, do I just slog it out and try to go get a job and fit into somebody else's structure or do their own thing? And then Merrick, over to you for the next question after that. Well, I do. First of all, I think uh, transitioning veterans are incredibly well positioned to succeed uh, in the modern workforce. 
because you have a thing that a lot of people don't, which is uh, discipline. And, you know, you all know uh, the power of putting the work in to get an outcome that, you know, might be a year or six months in the future, but requires daily consistent effort. So I think that the mentality, just like a professional athlete, the thing I would say is that as it, my world is B2B technology companies, my world is kind of venture capital backed high growth companies. I do believe in the value of experience, right? The reason that for me, Revenue Collective is working as well as it does. I, I started a business before, right? I started a record label uh, 21 years ago, right? It didn't work. And, and I then get, got 20 years of experience. And there's a reason that Revenue Collective is growing now when it might not have 10 years ago. So I am not somebody that says, you know, throw caution to the wind, fuck it, you know better than anybody else. I do believe that experience is valuable. That's me personally. The second thing I would say is that you've got to, you know, the, the, the problem sometimes that you, if you're going to be in, in my world of startup kind of high growth technology companies, the, there's not that, it's not consulting. And I think that people can transition to consulting or investment banking or finance. And that's, you know, frankly, if you're just trying to get rich, finance is a better, straighter path. But if you want to work at an operating company, you have to understand that there's not that many functions at, a, at an early stage operating company, right? There's a few limited functions. And so you have to be willing, perhaps, I don't know what your predisposition is towards sales, for example, but you have to, you might have to take one step or two steps backward in order to take three steps forward. Because here, let me give you an example. Um, I worked at this place, Gerson Lammer Group for seven and a half years. Gerson Lammer Group, super successful company, tremendously profitable. I made a lot of money there, but they didn't put me into a slot. And in fact, the sales team at Gerson Lammer Group was kind of looked down upon. And so I came out of Gerson Lammer Group. My, my most recent title was head of research management. Uh, it was structured like a, an, a, basically like a big investment bank. Like there's an equity research desk and there's a head of research, but we didn't produce research. It didn't make any sense. When I tried to go get a job, nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. And so I had to reinvent myself as a salesperson, right? Because that's, there's two things that happen at a software company. You either build it or you sell it. Everything else is ancillary. If you don't know how to build it, meaning write code and be a software developer, then we don't have a lot of room for you know, head of strategy when it's a $2 million company. The strategy is go out, call as many people as you can and get them to buy the thing. So um, that sometimes might be like if you're transitioning and you're used to being to leading large teams, right? Which many people in the military have done and you're used to, I don't know what you're used to, but when you're an SDR sales development representative, like you might have to take an entry level position and reform yourself as a salesperson or whatever functional expert you're looking, you're looking to project as a means of achieving whatever goal you want in five to 10 years. And to the point of, you know, my subsequent conversation, that's my, the number one piece of advice I give anybody, because I do these coaching calls pretty much all day, because um, that's a benefit of, you know, Revenue Collective, you get to talk to guys like me. Um, but the, the main thing I say to anybody, including myself, by the way, is where do you want to be in three years? Where do you want to be in five years? Like, like, I can't help you figure out what to do until you tell me what you want from yourself. But let's also agree that just like, you know, we were talking before we started recording about running a marathon. Like, it's not about, I, you might be want to be a CEO of a hundred million dollar company. That's great. I could want to run a marathon tomorrow. I'm not in shape to run a marathon and I run almost every day. So it's not about what I want. It's not about desire. It's about putting in the work. So as long as we're agreed that there's going to be work required and experience required, let's put out, let's map out a journey over the next five years 
and figure out where do you want to be in five years? And then we can work backwards from what are the experiences that you need to get where you want to go in five years? And then we can start checking off that list of getting those experiences. Eric, where do you want to be in five years? <laughs> oh, or Sipping my ties on a beach, but yeah, kind of irresponsible <laughs> and juvenile thing to say. Well, that That's might be a good transition over to you. Um, yeah. Maybe do you want to give a little kind of where you're at in life and you know your career transition, and then we can just kind of go from mm -hmm. there. Yeah. So um, you know, originally growing up in Houston, and with the Navy, spent all my time in San Diego. So kind of my my ecosystem that I came in from an engineering minded family and either oil and gas and, and real estate to then what I was looking to get into for undergrad and starting my career from there. It's kind of the, the, the stars aligned and more so the opportunity to go to the Naval Academy fit who I was at a, as a person and what I was looking to do for those four years. So you know, at the Naval Academy majored in economics. So with their STEM core curriculum, I saw that as a good way to balance the engineering minded way of thinking I had with, with business and this budding investing desire. Um, you know, didn't touch that very much for nine years where I went into the Navy, served as a SEAL for nine years, mostly San Diego based, a fair amount of deployments in there and one year of more proper staff time in Bahrain. So I lived abroad. Kind of that whole experience in the Navy was, was good. Continually increasing levels of seniority experience, leading different size teams of different compositions. Some just SEALs themselves at SEAL teams and at other times either cross service of Army and other Navy personnel to at times international where on some of our deployments we'd work with uh, Thais or Aussies, um, Indonesian, Kiwi militaries. So towards the end of my time in the military, I, I saw I was naturally promoting into positions uh, that were a little different than why I wanted to join the military. A little more operations, a little more administrative type roles, which is valuable and natural in any organization as senior, but it was stepping too far away from the things that really the community. So there, there had been a, a pretty well-trodden path of guys at my tenure leaving and going to business schools. And I wasn't quite sold on that. I knew it was a good option and it set folk up well on a good, high earning, high achieving path. But I was also of a mind that I just wanted to get out in the world and get experience to see what a job looked like at various different companies, how a normal company with a profit and loss uh, mandate worked. Uh, organizationally, it, it would just be a little different. Um, and, you know, and ultimately having the Wharton MBA uh, admission in hand, I felt that, you know, this is a very good decision to go down. The way I saw it was not so much that it'd be this pivotal life-changing thing, but that it'd be, uh, it would help inform my worldview of how business, the world work, different industries. I saw Wharton with their big class size as ways to put myself in an environment where I'd have so many more serendipitous connections with a random classmate that came from India and another lady that worked nonprofit consulting in South America. So all those ideas 
And that spider web of connections would help me in my mind in my generalist understanding of, of things kind of form out and, and understand the world a lot better. Um, professionally, when I was at school, I, I felt that moving into commercial real estate in some fashion would kind of hit my, my personal desires, a good, strong and broad set of career options in there. And I stepped off in that path, but the, the virus and its effect on the economy had different uh, opinions for how that industry looks right now. Things are still moving, but it, it's high friction and there's not a lot of cracks that you could see light through. Um, so recognizing that it is a high lift or a high hurdle to kind of pursue certain opportunities that a year ago would have been much easier for me to turn over. It's, I am, am now looking into other e either interests or things I had also been interested in. Um, more recently this summer, I interned at a real estate fintech startup. Uh, seed stage, just the three co-founders building out products on the investment side and on another internship with a first raise uh, venture capital fund. So one principal on his own doing his first raise and kind of seeing that structure, how it's built, how he was balancing everything he needed. And as well as from that startup side, you know, kind of knocked me back off this track of, I have to hit all these test gates. I have to be an associate here to then hit these few different levels and even much more now than I was two years ago, I'm much more comfortable with, you know, I have a high risk tolerance as, as far as being open to different types of opportunities. Uh, it has expanded my filter. So a, a little more categorically things that I had been looking at are earlier stage startup roles, maybe not quite seed, but early in the series where it is high growth working on kind of an underlying uh, product or an industry I think is very exciting, which will span anything from agriculture, AI, robotics, uh, prop tech, to also a, a type of operating role at a, a private equity company, either in one of their portfolios or on their platform. And I, I see that experience in those two things as a way for me to get a very solid base of business operating and business building because my 10, 20 year plan is eventually to have uh, some spare change of my own and have some platform where I either have my own company or running uh, as part of a team, a small company or um, kind of a holding umbrella. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh... easy, right? <laughs> no, I mean, it sounds like you're pursuing it quite thoughtfully, to be honest with you. So, um, I mean, I'm happy to, where, where, where should we take the conversation, Jordan? Ask him hard questions. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah something that, that might be useful, one for me and also kind of whoever views this is when I was getting out in 2018, the way I did my, my initial networking or just fact-finding mm -hmm. of what stuff looked like was to hit up the people in my network that I knew a year or two in front of me, either at school or doing whatever they were, and to, to talk about what they were doing, what that was called, and what that actually meant. Because I was finding that when I would talk to someone doing business development at uh, like a manufacturing startup, it was very much different than a financial institution. It, and it confused me. And 
because I, I didn't have a good way to step through that. It was, um, you know, slow to pick up traction as far as just to kind of feel that out. And, and so, you know, as it would apply for me in on the, on the startup side is, what is a useful way for someone when they're doing networking calls or researching companies to peel out kind of sales at one company? How is that different than sales at another or like uh, biz ops or growth roles, demand gen, how, how to think about that either by industry or size? Hmm. Okay. Well, um, Some of it is just experiential um, and I don't have easy answers because to write business development means a bunch of different things at most larger organizations. It might mean corporate development or it might be large partnerships and alliances, whereas sometimes a VP of business development just means a salesperson. So I don't have, I guess, you know, how would I, there's no, there's no easy way to figure out what life is like at any particular company uh, before you are at that company, aside from the way that you're doing it. I think if you're thinking about what kinds of companies and what kinds of, so let me like reframe the question a little bit. I think that there's kind of three Venn diagram, you know, there's three circles that need to create a, you know, an intersection, a Venn diagram overlap uh, when you're thinking about your career. And uh, those three are, um, what you're interested in, what you're good at, and where the market is going. And those things all need to overlap. And then uh, the thing that I typically say is, uh, so first, most people overweight what they're interested in, and they underweight where the market is going. You know, so I'm the perfect example, right? I started a record label because I like music. Well, good for me. That doesn't, I happen to start a recorded music record label, you know, business, that was really capital intensive, that had really poor working capital you know, frameworks, meaning like you, put, you pay a lot of money now and you don't get it back for months and months, if not years, uh, and in an industry that was at that point collapsing. So like, good for me for really liking music, nobody cares. So um, the first thing is most, again, most people, you have to have a point of view, I think, in terms of picking a great company, uh, you have to have a point of view on where the market is going. Sounds completely obvious, but so few people do it. The second thing is that um, you have to analyze and really understand, you know, when you think about what you enjoy doing, what you're good at. Um, I think people miss, I don't think there's enough uh, self-reflection about what that means. And so, there, because you'll say, I'm, I don't like sales or I don't like marketing. You're like, well, I don't know, you know, it doesn't really mean anything because, you know, most of us, 99% of white collar work, right? We sit down at a laptop and we start moving our fingers. So like whether you're sales or marketing or whatever. So how do you redefine some of these functional categories that don't have any specific definition, particularly because they're changing all the time into a useful frame that can help you understand uh, whether you'll enjoy something or not. So let me give you an example. Uh, if you are, do you get joy from kind of like the synapse, the neuron, the endorphin rush of like transactional, like if you play sports, do you like, do you love uh, scoring a basket or do you love like when, when the team scores a touchdown, do you love that, that, that feedback loop of like you do something and you get immediate feedback on it? Cause that, that's what, that's part of what sales is, or at least that's what like commercial sales is, right? Like 
you are pursuing something, you are you know, hunting and gathering, you are hunting after something, you have a singular focus in mind, you want something, you get it. How do you feel about that? Does that, does that satisfying? There's a whole group of people that um, don't find satisfaction in that actually. They, they wanna use their brains more and they want long sort of like, con like consulting work, right? What is consulting work? Consulting work is long projects. There's no immediate endorphin rush. Maybe the endorphin rush is like you deliver the presentation to the management team at the end of the consulting engagement, but you're not, you're still not going to implement the work, right? There's no feedback loop that's, you don't know, you know, you're not immediately driving revenue. You close a deal, you immediately know that you've contributed a hundred thousand dollars. So like you, if you desire quick feedback on your impact, then sales might be interesting. If that is not that as interesting as sort of deep thought, right? Really thinking about a problem from a million different angles and really studying it, then maybe sales isn't a good fit. And maybe something like investing or consulting is a good fit. So that's an example of like thinking about what are the things that you're good at in a different way than just like, I like sales versus I like marketing. The other thing I would say is just in terms of big company versus small company. And then I'll find in a, a couple other frames. So here's what I found. Um, I have a problem with authority. I, uh, I don't, you know, I don't like people telling me what to do. And also I don't, I don't like the act of deliberation, right? I don't like sitting in a room with five other people getting to the best answer, to be honest with you. I like, I, I do, I have this like strength of conviction score where it's like, if I feel strongly about something, then I think we should just do it. Cause I'm probably right. And if I don't feel strongly about it, I really don't want to be involved in the decision at all. I'm not somebody that likes sitting there with five people over the course of three hours, working through and being really sensitive to everybody's opinions and finally getting to a solution that's kind of the average of all of our, <laughs> all of our best ideas. So it's like pretty good, but not great. And I don't, I know it sounds dismissive, but like my mom, who is an ambassador, she does like that. She likes the act of making the decision. She doesn't like the sense of purpose that you get once you've made a decision and you're going out to execute it. She likes the act of making a decision. So if you like the act of making a decision, you should work at a bigger company. If you, act the, if you like the sense of fulfillment that you get from executing a decision, and that's not dismissive because there are people that do like, they like collaboration. They want to go on a journey with other people. I want to go on a journey with other people too. I just tend to want to tell them what to do. You know, I don't want to be one of the 50 people that sort of slowly contributing an idea so that by the end of four months, we get to a consensus and then we can start moving out. So again, that's a, like, what is the difference between big and small? Big is, and there are people that are like this and I interview them because I run a, a podcast and like you talk to people and it's clear that they, they, they don't have this burning desire to like to build something right away. What they want is they want the journey to be really fulfilling. And those are people that tend to be really successful big company executives. And that's why I'm just probably not ever going to be a successful big company executive, except hopefully as a CEO. So, you know, Sam, back on your earlier yeah. point on um, function, I, I really like that example about, you know, do you enjoy the endorphin rest, the transactional nature? Like that's resonates hundred percent with me on the small company. The second frame that you had big company, small company, like, I would rather go through four years of financial hell, but I can still make the decisions. And fortunately, you know, my wife is supportive of that <laughs> to the extent that I know, but that was a big litmus pest over the past four years is that 
that was your big company, small company frame. Um, back on the first point on the functional thing, if Merrick and others, let's say they want to be part of a smaller company, maybe early stage and or small, and let's apply it to the tech framework, um, what do you think about the function of product management? So for example, going to learn how to be a project manager for six months and being an intro project manager, like can you product maybe paint the, product. Uh, sorry, product manager. Um, can you kind of maybe uh, in tech companies with that broad scope, <laughs> FinTech or whatever, what are some of the key functions that people should be considering to see what's a fit for personality and interest skills? Yeah, that's a good, thank you for asking that. Okay, so um, we have technical roles and non-technical roles. Product in many ways, these, I'm a salesperson. And yet I think the most interesting jobs are product and marketing. So, um, so there's engineers, there's product. Product are the people that are like the architects versus the contractors. And we can walk through like each function. There's, there's, let's talk front office, sales and marketing, customer success. Those are the revenue functions. Then in terms of building the technology, there's product and engineering. And then in terms of back office, there's final finance, legal, HR or people, and, uh, and, and then maybe operations. And what is operations? Operations will depend entirely on the existing skill sets within the company because operations kind of means everything else. Um, so now like, what about strategy? Well, that's not gonna be an early stage company. Those roles exist, but they're gonna be, they're gonna be Gerson Lerman style companies, right? Gerson Lerman Group's gonna do 650 million this year in revenue. And, um, you know, around the time that I left when they were 300 million, you know, they, they started hiring McKinsey people to like help them determine strategy, which are like, and those are cushy gigs because you you don't have any direct responsibility, but um, people defer to you because you're like the big brain that's helping figure out where the company goes. But let's focus on early stage. So engineers write the code and they, they build the platform. Product managers are the link between the customers and the engineers. And really, and so the, the product manager, the, per, the, the job of product management, you know, and there are better product managers than me to explain it, is the job of talking to the customer, understanding and distilling the, really the separating what they ask for from what they truly want, and then taking those requirements and distilling them to their simplest essence, and then giving those as instructions to the engineers to build the thing. And so, you know, that's why uh, product kind of like product background CEOs are some of the most sought after people. They're not necessarily technical, but for example, revenue collective, right? What's our next big executive hire? You know, I'm non-technical. So it's very easy for me to hire, which I have done a VP of marketing, a VP of growth, which is our version of sales and a VP of customer success. I know I can, I can, I can identify those people. I can figure out if they're going to be good. Um, we don't have an engineering, you know, we don't have a platform yet for Revenue Collective. So my next hire, my next big executive hire is a VP of product. And so what is the VP of product? The VP of product is not necessarily an engineer, but it's, it's somebody that, that understands engineers and that can translate my requirements or the customer requirements back to the engineering team and frankly, get them excited about building it. Because the other problem in this modern era is that engineers are so sought after that it's not just that you pay them a tremendous amount of money. You have to, you have to make them interested in the work and you have to, it can't just be build the thing that does this. It has to be, you're solving this, you know, life-changing problem. So product managers are the people that are responsible for translating 
what the customer needs back to the engineering team. Sales team, that obviously those people are, are, are responsible for turning demand into revenue. That's a subtle but important distinction. Marketing is the, is the group of people that are responsible fundamentally for creating the story, the message of the company, uh, and then delivering that message to the right group of people at the right time so that they become interested so that the salespeople can turn their interest into money. Customer success is the group of people that make sure that the money stays, right? So the typical funnel would be marketing creates awareness and interest, sales turns that into revenue and closes the deal, customer success manages the customer journey after that, after the deal closes to make sure that those people are happy and that they renew their agreement. Eric, where's, where's your head at kind of in light of this? Like, do you like the longer, more deliberative, you know, hey, let's, we're building a product, there's a six month roadmap, or do you like the sales? Like, where's your head at in kind of this discussion? Yes, so my, Expectation of it is that those more de deliberative sit down and, and think about where the product is going and moving. It, that either happens once someone has kind of that that waster that experience to do that at a bigger company, or that is one of the ten people at a smaller startup where everybody is just sharing a bunch of hats. I, I think for for me. You know, when I think back to it, one of the roles that I had in the military, that that staff type job, when I talked about in Bahrain, it's, it was incredibly um, not fulfilling. It it was a poor role, the type of work that I did. I, I walked away from that tour and just saw all the initiatives I started. They were either dead or moved on and the focus was different and there was poor there was poor alignment in the effort that I put out to seeing the tangible effect of that. You know, I did a lot of work that helped move the initiatives along, but there, there was no way for me to check that was what I was doing actually good for the organization or not. So when I think of the framework, Sam, that you were talking about is, you know, it, it doesn't have to be an every day, every transaction thing, but to see the positive or neutral result that my effort is having is, is important to me and something that I, I think would be fulfilling to me and help fill this like mission-driven void. What else am I looking for? What do I need to kind of succeed as a professional? That is something like that. I don't think that necessarily has to come from sales. Um, no, I don't some of the work that I... I think the main thing is do not become a consultant if that's how you felt about uh, gig and bar. You are describing. <laughs> All right, that's one key takeaway from this. <laughs> I'll admit at at business school when they have these employers come and they have these big information sessions, I would go to some of the consultant ones just because two hundred people in the class would go, and I'd sit back and think of it like this: this isn't really the work that I think I like. I, I, I'm not interested in it. And even from the, the banking side, which a few of the folks I was speaking with at the big investment banks, it was very advisory, and very long transaction, but not being the, the primary party of it, kind of advising on it, that I, I found just even in those conversations with those professionals that I, I think I can hold the conversation and in that conversation, I couldn't, there was just nothing to talk about. I, I couldn't hold up yeah. my side of it and there just wasn't that interest. So as far as kind of like the, the function, I don't think it has to be a 
you know, sales type role, but one of the projects that I was helping on with this startup was sitting in the customer conversation meeting. So talking with endowments, pensions, uh, institutional investors, seeing their pain points and their, their friction points of the real estate investment process and seeing how those ideas would change the product as it is being developed to then think of what can be sold in the future. How do we actually change the no code platform that is being built right now to be attractive for it, combining the understanding and the knowledge of the real estate marketplace and who this specific person is. Is it sovereign wealth fund? Is it a pension? And kind of putting that together. So it's not this long drawn out process, but it's it's kind of a decision you make today is then shifting the, the whole trajectory of what you're building. And I, I saw that as a drawn out process, but at a smaller company, so it's happening faster. I mean, that's a very tangible. You're describing a product job. And the only thing I would say there is, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's the place where, um, you know, if you're, as long as you're, when I've seen product managers fail, it's because they are too focused on the process of product development and they don't care enough about the customers. And that's often with an an engineering led um, organization where the engineers are just building interesting things, but not, you have to, if you, so that's why if you're interested in real estate, like that might be a perfect role because you're interested in real estate, you're interested in the customers, you want to sit with those sovereign wealth funds. You might just not want to sell them something, but you want to listen to them and really try and understand what they're saying so that you can take that and translate that, that back to a spec. The thing I would say, just as a word of caution before you go too early stage is, like I said at the beginning, I do think you know there's there's a whole language about how to do this. There's a whole um, set of technologies that you'll need to understand in order to be a great product manager. So the thing that would be a, in my opinion, it just depends, um, but it might be a mistake to go work for two early stage company where you'll be the person responsible for doing all of the things and you'll be making it up on the fly as opposed to pursuing, you know, a sort of quasi apprenticeship where you are, where you are trying to find the best people or the best organizations to work for and learn from just so that when you go off on your own, you have the context of knowing how people, you know, what are the choices? What are the ways that people might do it? Um, Because what I see a lot in my world is that a lot of people um, get, they love the thrill of early stage, which everybody does. It's awesome. And it really is fun to build something and to be incredibly scrappy. The issue is that um, that's just only one way to do it. And if you get stuck at a certain stage, that sometimes becomes how you're defined for your career. And you don't, you don't, that's why, as I mentioned, it's like looking ahead five to 10 years and having a checklist. So you can say, these are the experiences I need and just intentionally going out and seeking those experiences. And really it depends on how old you are, but really kind of irrespective of how much they pay, as long as they pay you enough to live so that you can say, I've got big company experience. I've seen how, you know, salesforce.com or some large company does product management. I've got middle stage company experience, and now I've got super early stage company experience. And I've determined that, um, you know, these are some of the best product managers or, or VPs of product in New York City or wherever you are. And I've worked for one of them. And then if you couple those, you know, if you couple that experience together over like, you know, five to seven years, yes, it takes, it takes, a, it's like the, the longer, more complete way of doing it, because then you get there 
and you know what you're doing and you know what your choices are. Have you seen the movie a couple of times in a couple of different ways? That again, you know, I mean, a lot of my, a lot of my feedback is really, and it sounds like, you know, we're, we're roughly on the same page, but a lot of my feedback is like encouraging people to just take a longer term view of their lives and saying like, listen, this is going to be a career. We're not solving for a get rich quick scheme. If you want to get, if you just want to make money, you should go work at a private equity firm. You should go work at a hedge fund. There are easier, simpler ways to just make money. But if you want the combination of making money plus personal fulfillment, then we're talking about a career. So then we've got to say, okay, let's map out. It doesn't have to be perfect, but let's have a view on what we need to have learned over the next 10 years. Do you think like a next, and maybe kind of wrap up, because uh, we're coming up on 50 minutes, um, in terms of takeaways here, do you think one maybe action step would be to reach out to like a product manager at a tech company that has a hundred to 250 people and just say, can I just shadow you for a, a week virtually or, you know, a month virtually or whatever that is. Um, like what's a way for him to kind of get something more tangible. I'm not sure about um, shadow you for a week. That might be a bit of an aggressive ask, but how about a series of informational interviews? And by the way, those often turn into job offers. So, you know, you tell the human story. I was a SEAL. You know, I, I work in grad. I mean, I'm sure that you'll have tons of, that's a pretty damn good resume. So I think you should be well positioned. Okay, oh, heaps of stories. <laughs> and then you say like, can we grab coffee, a virtual coffee for 15 minutes so I can learn what you do and how you do it because I'm thinking about building a career in product. And not everybody will say yes, but many people will. Man, I love that concept about a series of informational interviews to say, like, four over the next month, once a week. And I just, because I, I can't answer everything, ask everything in one informational interview. I really like that concept of a series of it. Um, Merrick, what's kind of your maybe top one to three takeaways from this, from this call? And we, then we can wrap up. It's, uh, it, it kind of wraps up also your previous uh, video the two of you did, the investors and operators, that the the, the self-respect or looking internal for who you are and what, what drives you and your top value needs and, and aligning that with your path and, and knowing what you're trying to optimize for and then just building back from that off, off 10 years. Yeah. I mean, and the, um, some of this stuff is pretty like basic visioning stuff. Like some of it sounds super strategic and then some of it is just, you know, I, I finally read uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, like one of the oldest personal development books there is. And I don't know what I thought it was, but it's not what I thought it was. And it's exactly what we're talking about, right? It's like mm -hmm. you have a vision in your head of where you want to be. And, and I think if you, if you really just, I think some people say like, I want to be X. I want to be, you know, I want to have uh, 10 million bucks by the time I'm 50. It's like, where do you want to live? Like, what's the room? Give me a vision. Like you're walking through your living room. What does your living room look like? Like be more specific so that it's not a, a leap into the void. It's actually uh, a, you know, time is a flat disc. It's already happened and you're just moving towards your destination. I just think people don't spend enough time being specific about what they want. And as a consequence, they never end up really defining where they're going. I think yeah, that is also a, like, 
Good. The, the uh, you know, the point that you were saying of think of the work you do as more functions than rather than just this is sales or, or this is another type of function. I, I think back the experience I had working with a real estate developer in New York, the, what I was doing day to day, hour to hour, and over the course of the week, it was varied. I was in the office in a model. I was out in a meeting with an architect and that dynamic experience was fulfilling to me rather than the one week that I did have to spend in a model to, to turn something. So I, I know that about my myself now and it is something that colors my thinking, speaking with potential employers or during informational interviews. Not to throw last comment, I'll say though, however, all of that is true. However, uh, knowing how to build a model and knowing how to think about a, a business from a financial perspective and an operational perspective is a secret weapon that uh, not enough people employ. And it is why it is why it's still more likely to be a CEO from the CFO's job than from the chief sales officer's job. Um, so, you know, one, whatever way you can learn to analyze and understand a financial model and understand how that translates to value creation from an operating company's perspective, then you couple that with like true operational skills and experiences. That's a unique and amazing combination. That's awesome. I think my key takeaway out of this, one of the key takeaways is just the importance of taking the long view of a career and that the next step doesn't have to be perfect. That's be like a step in a generally good direction. Yeah. And you know, there's a, there's a better, uh, smarter person than me that wrote a blog post. Uh, it's this guy, Chris Dixon, who's a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And it's called climbing. It's, it's, it's either called climbing the right hill or climbing the wrong hill. Okay. Uh, Chris, Chris Dixon at, at Andreessen Horowitz. Chris Dixon. Let's look at what it's called. Climbing the wrong hill. Chris Dixon. Okay. He still got it up. You can read it. He's published it 11 years ago. It's still great. So that blog post and your suggested book, Think and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. There we go. <laughs> All right. This is cool. I'm really glad we had this. I think it was a much more in-depth discussion. And I think that we also covered a lot of questions that people who are transitioning are thinking about. So I really appreciate this dynamic and doing nice this. Nice to meet you, Merrick. Good luck. Yeah, Phyllis, thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you later. See ya.